Hello and welcome to this episode of Coastal Catch-Ups. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, it's been a while since I've recorded one. Um, I've just been quite busy the past few weeks, but um, anyway, that's, I'm not here to give excuses. Um, this episode is about my time in New Zealand. And don't worry, I'm not here to bore you with uh, how great my holiday was and um, stuff like that. I I've basically picked a few locations I visited um, and I've kind of taken something away from each of these locations. So uh, the locations are Milford Sound, Pio Pio Thai, um, so that's a joint name between English and Maori. Um, and I'm going to talk a few things about carrying capacity of tourism sites. Uh, it's not too technical, don't worry. Um, it's keep, keeping a very high level. And then the wildlife new sites as well. Um, the other area I'm going to touch on is a site near Dunedin, which is the Royal Albatross Centre. Um, and that seabird, which um, is ginormous. It's the first time I've seen one. Um, but I'm just going to discuss about uh, the challenges that species um, encounters in its life and also what the management of that site is um, doing to help um, protect that population on that um, area just outside Dunedin um, on the Otago uh, Peninsula. And then lastly, I'm actually going to touch a bit on the Maori people. Um, I've done some reading on how their practices of managing the environment actually could play a critical role in our coastline and marine areas today. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna try and tie those two together. Um, it's a really interesting, and I probably will talk about that more in the future. Um, because yeah, there's so much to cover in that, but um, we'll touch on it today, and uh, we'll take it from there. Um, so that's the podcast today. Just another quick reminder of on the Wednesday, twenty seventh of December. Um, doing our first coastal meetup. So that's just uh walk if you're interested along um it's a Delmont country park in County Down in Northern Ireland. If you're interested in coming along to that, it's there's no agenda, there's nothing um it's literally just a meet up of people and um just to kind of um create like a little community and we're just gonna do a walk, maybe grab a coffee afterwards, very laid back, very chill. Um if you're interested in coming along to that and um, you're very welcome. Um you can join our WhatsApp group. Um, I'll pop a link in the bio of this episode if you want to join. You can join that and then keep up to date with the details of that walk and then future events in the future um, coming into 2024. Can you believe it? Um, so, yeah, that's that. And, yeah, uh, without further ado, I'll get into the episode. And the coastal sea, aquatic life, and everything in between. So sit on there and take a seat. Coastal catch-ups with the So as I mentioned, the first site I'm going to chat about is Milford Sound, Pio Pio Thai. Um, so, like I mentioned, that's a joint name between the Maori and English name. Uh, the English name came is named after Milford Haven, which the area was 
uh, discovered by a Welshman, and he in, named um, the sound after him, uh, or after that location when he found it. Um, the area is it's it's a glacial valley, so if you've been or if you've seen photos of it, it's a really steep-sided valley and um, filled with seawater. So um, there's a narrow entrance, and then it's just a big, um, long uh, lock. You probably call it in Scotland or um, in the UK. But yeah, it's salt water, really high. The highest cliff is 1,200 meters, um, sheer rock face, um, and it's renowned for its natural beauty and landscape. So um, it was named after, it was named as Sign, but it's actually um, a ford. It's in the Fordland National Park in New Zealand. Um, fords are, are um, created through uh, glacial erosion, where signs are actually created through river erosion. So, um, Bit of a mix-up there in the naming of it, but it's stuck anyway, um, and that's what it's known for now. Um, in terms of the Maori name for it, uh, Pio Pio Tai, that's actually named after a thrush-like bird, um, and there is a story behind that, um, but I don't know enough about it to go into it now. But um, basically, it's a it's a it's a symbol for a significant cultural symbol for the Maori people in that area, and that's what it was uh, named after. Um, there's two permanent waterfalls. There is a couple of other ones, but it relies on the rainfall. So if there's a lot of rainfall, um, temporary waterfalls or ephemeral waterfalls, I think that's what you call temporary waterfalls, um, they um, come alive, whereas these two just remain permanent, even in the drier times. In its history, um, I said it was discovered by a Welshman. can't remember his name, but it wasn't discovered by Captain Cook. When you hear about these places, you normally associate these places to be associated with Captain Cook's expedition, but he actually missed it twice. So when you're outside, the um, sound looks like a bay. You can't see the inlet, the, the, the sound, um, and that's why it was missed twice by Captain Cook. Um, and of course, he didn't discover the Maori people were there long before um, the Europeans arrived. Um, hence why the Maori name is used in um, the name of the area as well. If you arrive in Milford Sound, you get taken out in a boat um, and you can um, take in the scenery. And there's a couple of New Zealand fur seals there. Um, there is Fordland penguins as well, which are a yellow-crested um, penguin. And um, they've got like a yellow eyebrow, um, quite cool looking. They nest along the shores um, in the area as well. You can see them um, hopping along the rocks. So the area actually has black coral as well, so it's not like normal coral where you'd associate with nice bright coral reefs. It is associated with not having algae present um, attached to the coral, so it doesn't require light and that, therefore it can thrive quite well, even though the sound's probably relatively shallow compared to um, where this species would normally be found. It's because of a dark layer of surface water um, along the um, water so the fresh water and salt water don't mix that well and um, you have um biomolecules called tannins in the fresh water which kind of decrease the light being allowed down to the seabed and um, which allows this coral to um, survive here so quite interesting i had no idea about this on my tour obviously you can't see it and um, it's only until i read afterwards about it um so quite interesting just wanted to go into a bit more detail on the New Zealand fur seal before um going um going forward and talking about car the carrying capacity of um Milford Sound. So the fur seal was hunted. It was um hunted by Ma Maori populations as well as uh, the European settlers. 
um, and it was very close to extinction. Um, I think I read somewhere it was one of the first species protected in New Zealand, but I can't uh, be certain on that right now. But anyway, um, it's now classed as least concerned, so the population has bounced back. And I know of reports there's tensions between the seal populations and uh, fishermen, because um, they're obviously after the same fish. Um, the main cause of death nowadays is entanglement and drowning in fishing gear. Um, so we're not, no longer being hunted, but there's still a risk to them in, in the oceans. Uh, looking back on it, there's actually, um, I know there's tension today, but the seals actually caused tension between Maori population and European um, hunters. Back in the day, there was um, the Sealers War between 1810 and 1821. Um, bit of history for you. And there's I think, light squabbles that just escalated in the violence, basically. Um, yeah, interesting that an animal can cause conflict between humans. Um, probably is. If I have a think, there's probably more examples of that. But if you can think of any, let me know. Um, the sea lion, or sorry, the Zealand fur seal looks very similar. To, well, for me, looking at it without any comparison, it looked quite similar to a sea lion. Um, sea lions are a lot bigger. The fur seal also has a longer nose. So there's some distinct... Um, differences and when you have a photo of the two species you can tell how much bigger the sea lion is but when you when you first see it from a distance it is quite hard to tell the difference now i just wanted to talk about the carrying capacity of milford sound now carrying capacity is a term that applies you can in this case it's about tourism but it can apply to um populations of humans or other species um, and it's basically the ability for a particular habitat or area to withstand um, a number of species. So in this case, it's the you know, number of humans in Milford Sound before the quality, environmental quality is taken away because of too many humans running about the place on boats. So hope I explained that um, well enough. But um, so basically, it's you, you kind of get the drift. If there's probably other places you think you, you've been in, it's really a it's like that Instagram versus reality thing. You think you see a photo of somewhere and it looks really picturesque, scenic, um, really quiet, and then you get there and people are queuing up for this one spot to get a photo. That's kind of what I'm getting at here. It's actually when you get there, it's taken away from the um the the qualities that make that area beautiful. Um and uh it can also apply to the conservation objectives as well. If your species, um, you know, if say there's dolphin, bottlenose dolphins visit the sound, um, if there's too many boats in the water, it could disrupt their uh, behavior, feeding patterns. Um, so you can look at look at it from outside the landscape scenic um, aspect and look at um, purely the effect on the ecosystem as well. Um, but anyway, so um, in 2007, they capped, well, sorry, they didn't cap, they suggested a cap of 4,000 tourists day at this site but it was never enforced um now i assume that it hasn't been enforced so it hasn't been um stuck to um but ultimately there needs to be a balance between tourism and the conservation of the site um so a study in 2021 actually found 80 percent of the visitors so i thought this would be interesting to see actually what the people thought um what the people visiting Milford Sounds, what they actually thought of the area, is it too overcrowded? And 80% of them said um, it is not crowded. So um, there's a lot of 
worry about the management of site, but it's interesting to see the perception of people that you visit in. It's at the end of the day, it's subjective. People could have an image in their head that this is a really picturesque, quiet place. Earlers probably maybe realize that this site is one of the most popular sites in New Zealand to visit. And therefore, we're maybe expecting crowds to get there. So in terms of managing this, um, I was reading that there's, so obviously the tour, tour operators want to continue. There's chat about having larger planes fly people in uh, to, to reduce the number of planes flying up and down the sound, because when you, when planes come in, they fly down the sound to land and then fly back up it. Um, there's also a really, I think, in, during the peak season from 11 to 1, um, that's when most people arrive from buses and then it's really, really busy from that um, time and then it probably before and after is not as um, busy. Um, so it's maybe like spreading the crowds out. Um, in terms of cruise ships, I actually, uh, when we visited the site, if a cruise ship would have been in that sound while I was there, I think I would have been very disappointed. Um, one, because it would just ruin yeah it, it would ruin the scenery and any photographs or yeah it would just be awful but they do come in and they do need permission to come in to the sign and they I assume they go in and out um I assume they can't stay for that long um but yeah so that's sort of the challenges that that site's facing um there is management plans so there's a paper I was reading they're calling for more more clear-cut management um plans for the site and um, to make sure it's it's that its beauty is maintained ultimately um so yeah that's just a brief introduction to the carrying capacity of the site um i might you might hear me talking about that again for other sites around our coast but um yeah that was just an example of milford sound the next site i want to talk about is the royal albatross center which is just located outside dunedin on the east side of South Island in New Zealand. So um, it's located on the Otago Peninsula just right at the end um, and the site is known for its Northern Royal Albatross colony um, and there's a centre set up there to help um, to allow visitors to visit the colony but also um, provide support to the um, um, colony in terms of management as well by um, trained people and conservationists. So the albatross, you probably heard of it in terms of the wandering albatross, gets that name because it can spend 85% of its life at sea. Um, in particular, the juveniles will spend three to five years at sea as well. Um, and it can travel up to 190,000 uh, kilometers a year. Um, so that's a fair amount of mileage. Um, and uh, they also have really large wingspans. So, for example, if you visit this site, um, you can pick out the albatross um, quite easily because they have a very long uh, wingspan, up to three meters in some cases. Um, so you can pick them out in, in compared to the gulls. Um, as I said, um, it's managed by the centre um, and it's probably one of the most intensely managed colonies in the world. Um, it first the colony first appeared during World War One, I, I think. Um, a couple of albatross tried to lay eggs there. I think the first one was eaten by a local, which is absolutely typical um of humans, but sure, um it's good to see her now here. Um and that was the first um conservation work was um done by a fella, Lance 
uh, Richdale, um, and from there it's just spiraled. Um, so it's clear from studies um, that the conservation work has helped, it hasn't hindered um, species. Um, there has been one report I read that um, the conservation is so hands-on, um, there was a slight reduction on juveniles that were um, hand-reared, um, i.e. whether they were abandoned at the nest and they're taken in by um, humans to feed and such. Um, there's a slight decrease in their um, life expectancy once they go to sea, but nonetheless, at least they are out at sea rather than they would um, initially never have made it. Um, so yeah, that's one study I read. And then um, other measures, if you go onto the Royal Albatross Centre website, you'll see live CCTV or surveillance of the birds. So they use that to monitor the bird nests. Um, they also can take eggs in and incubate them. Um, and like I said about hand rearing, um, when parents abandon their chicks or something happens to the parents and, and the chicks are abandoned, they can take them in and feed them. Um, the incubation, I'll just say that one of the predators, so there's predators that would get um, the eggs such as rodents and other mammals. But um, one thing I read was about blue fly and they actually lay their eggs in, um, it takes a couple of days for the eggs to hatch. And it takes, um, takes a couple of days for the eggs to hatch and the eggs um, from the blue fly, if they lay the eggs in the, the egg, it can um, be turned into larvae. I can imagine it's pretty gross, but um, there's a high possibility that the chicks will die if that happens. So um, they can take the eggs in and um, basically raise them that way. So um, and protect them when they're, when they're hatching. Um, so in my mind, it's very... Um, complex because you're you're real it's probably one of the in terms of i've read things about human intervention in wildlife but this is probably very very hands-on and very um very in, involved in the life of these birds so i remember um one of the um airbnbs i was staying at had a book about it um or had a chapter on it and it said like raised the question of whether these birds are actually wild if they um, there's so much intervention in the line and to um, survive and yeah that's a question that could be answered but um, as long as the centers are and doing the work and helping the species um, thrive and yeah um, like can't tell them not to do it so um, but yeah anyway so I mentioned about um, the juveniles so they go out to sea for three to five years but also if their first flight off the cliffs don't go well and they end up at the bottom of the cliff um, and they still survive and they can be recovered and brought in and, and then released again once they're fit to go. Um, so yeah, that's a, like we get a, yeah, if I was an albatross, I wouldn't mind having a wee second chance. So um, yeah, um, once the birds get out in the water, there's also other threats. Um, so it's not all plain sailing once they get out there. Um, first threat is plastic. So in the center they have a display and i'm sure you've seen it in documentaries before when they um dissect dead birds and, and animals and their guts are filled with small plastics um it's quite unbelievable that um but it's it, it, that that happens but it's not a surprise the amount of shite in the water um and they pick these up thinking they're small um fish or perhaps the fish they're eating have small plastics in like it's just it's a complete mess 
bottom line. Um, and unfortunately, that's not going to change until uh, I can't see it changing. Um, they might be crap going in the water. Um, but um, I've said before, clean up operations are good, but at the end of the day, if you look at the waste hierarchy and the first the first level of the hierarchy is prevention and it's preventing this stuff getting into the water. So you see technology of um, rivers with nets, you know, catching all this stuff before um, it goes into the water, which is really important. Um, but yeah, I think I'll draw a line under there because that's another episode in itself. Um, fishing as well is another threat. So in particular long lining so if you don't know what long lining is it's basically the fishermen lay um a line off the back of the boat i think it can be long up to kilometers and um, with hooks dangling down and um, baited hooks problem is once it's released the hooks if they're high enough that um can be reached by seabirds diving and um, they can be that they can dive catch and eat the bait and get caught in the hook and therefore uh, instead of pulling up fish they pull up sea dead seabirds um one of the i suppose mitigation to help um reduce um seabird mortality in long lines is they've came up with it's called a hook pod um and the hooks get once the hooks are in position um or um sent out the back of the boat this wee device covers the hook, so it can't be in, um, eaten or it can't catch on a on a seabird. Um, and this it's not until the hook sinks down beyond the diving level, which I can't remember. Um, maybe twenty meters. I can't remember how dive these or how far these birds dive down in the water column. But they um, there's a wee pressure sensor, and then it releases a hook, so the hook is out of range from the seabird. Um, now you could go into the whole topic about um, fishing practices and um, long lining and um, how sustainable that is, but we're not going to now. We're focusing on seabirds. So, um, and I've read that can practically eliminate seabird catch on long lining. So that's a, that's a positive um, and that's good. Uh, the other issue is climate change. So rising um, temperatures in um, the water will push prey, well, some prey further down um, in the cooler water. So um, that was on the website for, uh, where did I get that information? That was on the Albatross Centre website. Didn't read a study for that, but um, if I find that, I'll share it. Um, and yeah, just finally, there's clear evidence that the management has helped the species thrive. Um, so I those numbers, there's a comparison whether the probable numbers, if there was an intervention for this species on the, um, uh, Auto, the Autogo Peninsula, um, would be far lower um, if there was an intervention. So, yeah, that's uh, the albatross. That gives you a bit of insight about the conservation work going on there um, and the species itself. Um, lots of lots of subtopics all interweb of... Um, Ocean ocean topics with plastic coming in there, climate change and fishing. So three biggies, um, which you could spend a lot more time on, but um, we'll draw a line under it there. The last topic I wanted to talk about was the Maori people and their relationship with the sea. Now, I'll not cover every um topic in that um subject because you could go on the in terms of for 
um, settling on New Zealand and navigation, um, traditional navigation techniques, which is absolutely fascinating. You can using the stars, um, and other um, natural factors. But um, one thing I came across when um, uh, reading about um, the the traditional practices of fishing was um, the rahui. Um, now, apologies if I'm pronouncing that um, wrong, but it's a uh, ancient form of um marine management basically and the idea is it's um a restriction so the 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 um the word means i think it's translated in the english it means reserved maybe but um the idea is basically it's um an area of sea is put out of prohibited and um, for fishing and it's fascinating because it's almost like an ancient type or an, an old traditional type of uh, marine conservation, which um, when you think of all the legislation and um, the jargon and uh, acronyms of all the marine designations and um, directives and all the rest these days, um, this is just a simple practice of community knowing the importance of um, the ocean and what it can provide and um, having the sense um, and zero greed or um or ignorance of um extracting and knowing knowing how the how nature works and how you can work with it so i'll explain a bit about this um so uh, as i said it's a it's a type of um marine management so an area say you have an area in the water where it's popular for fishing um you would have uh in this case study I read, you have three zones, and one zone is completely off limits to fishing. And the idea is it allows fish species um, to recover and um, more fish, more things to eat, right? So, um, but it's off limits. And then two sides, either side, um, are um, temporarily open. So one one of the sides could be um, um, open while the other one's closed. Uh, close ones fishes and um, fish populations are recovering while this one is fished now it can be specific to the area if there's a particular type of fishing it doesn't really have an impact on the species and um, it's it, it can be allowed or um perhaps for example spear fishing if there's a particular type of um, species that's heavily impacted by spear fishing it's banned and it's not allowed um but then once that area, once the area it's open is becoming low on fish stock, it's closed, allow it to recover, and then and the other one opens. Um, so it's kind of working with nature and um, knowing what is required to allow it to recover, and it's basically not touching it and or having a human impact on it and letting it recover. Um, so yeah, we're massive increases in fish numbers um, on these closed sites and also on the open sites which um, give food to the communities. Um, and there's a lot of community involvement. So this case study I read was actually about an island in French Polynesia. Um, it is it's something, it, it, the community is heavily involved, um, which is something we don't see in probably the uh, Western countries, you know, it's very, it's in the law and, you know, that's written. And um, whereas this one, it's a lot more fluid. 
and this community makes the decisions it enforces the law not in terms of like um pitchforks but you know trying to engage with fishermen to make sure they're um, adhering to the laws um and if yeah making them understand that by doing this it helps the entire community um and yeah so that's um Rahui, um, and there's a quote here by, it was a minister of one of the islands, um, I think minister of the environment or whatever, um, but he says, today it seems like the world is in, the world in general always relies on scientific research to find solutions, but we also need to ask our elders. First, Polynesians, Polynesians arrived in the Pacific 4,000 years ago, and if we are still here today, it's because we know how to live and survive with our own solutions. So he has a point. Um, I think uh, there's a lot to learn from that, and I think it has been applied. That book I read recently by Charles Clover, Rewilding a Sea, points to this um, method as well about allowing um, marine areas to um, recover by having them closed off. Um, but then in this case, it's also about how does the community survive these islands you can't say no fishing because that's how they're going to survive so um it's a real it was an interesting um, topic on um a real life area um, and how they can manage it so that is the podcast finished um just to recap talked about um just to recap, talk about Milford Sound, carrying capacity, the wildlife there, um, touch briefly on fur seals, um, how they went from their extinction to flourishing now. Um, and then on car carrying capacity, um, it's basically the ability for a site and to withstand and a number of people or species that can be applied to animals as well. Um, so uh, yeah, interesting and hopefully We'll see maybe some management techniques come out for Milford um, to see how they will uh, manage tourist numbers in the future with watch of space. Um, the Royal Albatross Centre um, covered the life of an albatross and, and the main threats and how they can be um, mitigated by um, four-leaf ledge and monster in the water. So um, hopefully uh learn to take something away from that in terms of and um, for me i thought the hook pods and applying some new technology to fishing practices was really interesting um, and that can be um and the fact they can completely mitigate um seabird bycatch on long lines it's really interesting um and then finally i talked about rahui and the um restricting fishing practices and and it's been a while um, it's, our practice has been about for a while and how we can apply it um, to today's world with um, island communities and um, how we can uh, work with na nature and it is a good um, example of sustainability in terms of the working with the environment but also providing an economic in terms of uh, people maybe selling fish um, to live um, and yeah it's on the social side of people being able to live by the coast and um, so yeah really interesting topic and um yeah i'll, I'll probably uh, it's something that's kind of interested me more recently so i'll maybe try and write up something about that but we'll see if i get the time it's busy time of year from christmas
Um, and yeah, just a, one last reminder about the coastal meetup. Um, I'll pop the link in the bio if you're interested. If you live in County Down or Belfast area, um, you're more than welcome. It'd be great to meet you. Um, we can chat about coastal stuff, or we can chat about Christmas. We don't. It's like I said earlier. There's no agenda. It's just a, just a um a meet up with people um and friends. So, um, I'll wrap it up there. Uh, just want to thank say thank you very much for listening. Um, I know it's been a while since the last episode, but I'll hopefully get some more uh, episodes pumped out here and um, with some interesting people. Um. And yeah, I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.